Welcome to Creative Bones, a podcast exploring what it means to be creative. I'm your host, Trish Johnston, a seasoned graphic designer of over 20 years and the creative director of my studio, Othenstone. I'm on a mission to understand creativity more. Are we born with it? Is it our environment? Or is it something that we can learn to be? I want to understand this crucial component of my craft better and how it impacts our ability to problem solve and make decisions. At the end of my life, I want to know that I've left my best creative ideas behind. So whether you've got a creative bone in your body, or maybe none at all, join me as I have conversations with experts, mentors, colleagues, and friends across a number of fields, asking them about their version of creativity. McComas Taylor is a professor of Sanskrit at the Australian National University. As a lifelong learner of languages, he's had previous careers in publishing, Chinese and Tibetan studies, and ornithology. That's the studying of birds. He's the author of many books ranging from a dictionary of ridiculous words to a guide to birds of the Australian Capital Territory to serious Indological academic texts. I first met McComas when he answered the front door. His son and my high school friend Patrick had invited our group of friends over for a spaghetti dinner. I was 16 at the time, and little did I know that McComas wasn't a regular dad, he was a cool dad. McComas was one of the first names that came to mind when I was putting together a guest list for the podcast. After years of hearing him speak passionately on everything from veggie gardens to Sanskrit literature, I knew he'd have something to say about creativity. He shares how he makes learning an ancient and complex language like Sanskrit engaging and memorable. And he also challenged my belief that I wasn't good at languages. I couldn't stop smiling the whole way through this interview, and I really hope you enjoy it as much as I did. It's tried and tested, or you're still tinkering, or tried and tested. I've got I've got a winner, Trish. I've got the winning recipe. I now know <laughs> after all these years, I know how it's done. I've got it. I basically got it in the bag. But you've just got to. Enter. I just got to enter. <laughs> <laughs> Love it. Um, the first question that I always ask my guests, but I want to adapt it a little bit for you. If you won the, so actually tonight, $200 million in the Powerwall. If you won $100 million and you went on the trips, you paid off your debts, you took care of your family, did all the sensible things, what does day two look like and how do you spend your time? But the thing I find most interesting about you is that you have done so many things in your life that a lot of people would usually put off until they had more time or they'd retired or had different priorities. So, for example, you've learnt the clarinet in lockdown, you've written books, you've learnt an ancient language, you lecture, you made moon charts, you like Ethiopian jazz. So (laughs) my question to you is how is life different tomorrow after winning the lotto? I, I don't want to sound like a bit of a dick, but I wouldn't change anything. It was only this morning my wife was saying, we've got the perfect life. And I have to agree. And again, I don't want to put your listeners off, but I would have to agree. We have the perfect life. I'm not changing anything. Trish, tomorrow with what, what, how much did I win? $200 million. $200, $200 million. I get up in the morning. I'm going to have breakfast. I'm going to keep on with my teaching, my research. I'm going to keep on with my gardening and my cooking. Yeah. I don't think anything is going to change. That's, right. That's what I thought your answer would be, but I thought maybe there's something that you've done all these amazing things in your life and you've lived just, you've done so many different interesting things 
other than winning the Quince Jelly first prize at the Canberra show, is there anything that is just burning inside you to, like, what's next if you live the perfect life? I, I want to keep on doing what I'm doing. I hope that I will have good health. I'm looking to live into my 90s, if not my 100s. I want uh, good health. I want happiness. I want my children and my grandchildren to be safe and happy. For myself, although I'm a teacher, I really see myself almost more as a learner. I'm continually learning. I'm always learning from my students. I'm learning from my own projects. Uh, I enrol in a course most years. So I'm very excited about where that's leading. I'm not feeling my age. I'm not far short of 70 these days. My friends are all turning 70, but I don't feel it. I still feel exactly the same as I was when I was 25, although getting upstairs, I think I'm walking up two at a time rather than running up two at a time. (laughs) But uh, as far as I'm concerned, uh, this course, this trajectory that I'm on with my wonderful spouse of my partner of 50 years, mm-hmm. we're just going to keep on this trajectory, I think, as long as we possibly can. Yeah. That's lovely to hear because not a lot of near 70-year-olds would be able to say that. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm wondering if you can share the story of how you decided to learn Sanskrit because I think it's quite inspiring. And I can't pronounce the book, so I'm not even going to try. And then you saw, I think, a film on TV and you decided you would learn it. Can you tell it a little bit better than me? You've pretty well got the the heart of the story there, Mm. Trish. And again, it's a terrible cliche, but I I do tend to think I didn't choose Sanskrit, the classical language of India, but it chose (laughs) me. Now, I know a lot of people will say something like that, but uh, it it was a very spontaneous and wonderful falling in love with Mm. a language. Now, what, what happened? You're quite right. Just a little bit of background. My first degree was in Chinese and I've always had an interest in Asian languages, Asian literature. I'm really a literature person. Mm-hmm. So I had read a translation of the Mahabharata, the great Indian epic, 2,000 years old, the world's longest poem, uh, a great pillar of Indic uh, culture, civilization, society. And uh, one night in 1995, I watched a five-hour video of a dramatic presentation made by Peter Brook, the great uh, British director, theatrical director. He had reduced this fabulous epic into originally a 12-hour stage performance. And from that 12-hour stage performance, he created a five-hour video performance. And that was shown on uh, on SBS in September 1995. Mm. Now, I watched that and it didn't finish till half past one in the morning and it was a full moon night. And at the <laughs> end of that video, I went out onto the, the back step. My eyes were like dinner plates. I couldn't believe what I had just seen and heard. Mm. And under the full moon, I took a vow that I would learn Sanskrit so I could read the Mahabharatam in the original. And uh, the very next day, I went out and bought a book called Teach Yourself Sanskrit, which turned out to be a terrible place to start. It really is, with all my experience now, Mm. I know it's really a very, very poor introduction. Nobody ever made it past chapter five, but (laughs) I was lucky. That got me started. And I had lovely tutor. I found lovely tutors and lovely mentors in Canberra. I was largely self-taught. I did some Sanskrit in India, some Sanskrit in Germany, and I went back and did a PhD in Sanskrit 
that I didn't finish. Well, I started when I was probably in my late 40s, I guess. And so I, I then had a PhD in Sanskrit uh, by the time I was 50 or in my early 50s. And I spent really 10 years finding my feet in Sanskrit. And after 10 years, I started reading the Mahabharatam in the original. And I've been reading it at one page a day, more or less, not every day, but days when I can, for the last, <clears throat> is it uh, 14 years? <laughs> and I think <laughs> I'm about two thirds of the way through. Oh but, my goodness. But Trish, the problem is I can't remember what I have read. So oh. by the time <laughs> I get to the end of it, what am I going to do? I think I'll go back to the beginning <laughs> again. But it's a wonderful engagement. It means it's always fresh. It's, I, I never think of Sanskrit as being old. It's, I think of it as being always present. It's not like, mm. it never goes out of date. It's always there. It's perennial. It's evergreen. It's always fresh. Mm. It's really interesting because I was thinking, you've known me since I was 16 and that was 22 years ago. And I remember you doing your PhD and for a very long time, you were always working on your PhD and then you graduated and I think there was talk of you in a large parade of students taking it down to present, to submit your thesis. And I don't know if it ever happened, but we said, we can't wait for you to graduate because we're going to call you Dr. Mac. <laughs> it, well, it most certainly did happen, Trish. It was a wonderful occasion. So I was sharing an office with some Thai students and one of the Thai students said, oh, whenever we graduate, we always have a parade. And I thought, oh, yes, this is what we're going to do. <laughs> so, in fact, it was when I submitted my thesis uh, and it was a very happy occasion. I'd invited all of my friends and all of my family and neighbours and my fellow students and we all met in my little office in a demountable at the side of the Asian <laughs> Studies building and we marched in procession. Uh, there must have been 50 or 60 people. The theme was bells and whistles. <laughs> so, so my dear friends all brought uh, musical instruments or something to bang together to make a big racket. And we marched from my office down to the uh, PhD submission office singing three years older and what do you get? A hundred thousand words and deeper in debt. <laughs> and we arrived at the door of the submission office and they bolted the door. They thought we were a demonstration. We, we thought we, we, they thought we were a student invasion. And so oh, they locked us out. When they discovered we had no malign intent, they let us in. And I, I put those, in those days you had to submit hard copy. So great mm -hmm. big fat books and I think you had to submit four volumes or whatever it was and it made a very, very pleasing thump when it hit the table <laughs> in the submission office. Oh, my gosh, that's amazing. I just, I think what I love about your presence and I, I love about knowing you is that I always learn something new. And I think back to the coast trips where you would so graciously chaperone us while we were on our L plates and our P plates and we'd go to the coast and just the car ride there, you'd ask us, how do we know this music is from the 70s? Or can anyone tell me the major mastheads of every capital city? Or why do you think that street's called Mecca Lane? And it wasn't just listening to music and talking, it was learning. I sound like, you make me sound like a pain in the neck. No. <laughs> I'm, so glad, I'm so glad you enjoyed it. I and did. I'm really touched actually that you remember that. That's yeah. terribly sweet of you. But I think I enjoyed those trips as much as everybody. Yeah. It was all good fun. It was really good fun. And I 
I think I would describe you as having an encyclopedic memory. Would you say that? I don't. I, I, I think I have uh, almost limitless uh, interest. I'm, I think I'm interested in everything, mm. but I don't remember things nearly as well as I used to. So I wouldn't say I have uh, an encyclopedic memory, but I have a copious thirst, un, uh, unsatisfiable. There must be a better word. Insatiable, <laughs> insatiable <laughs> thirst. I'm relentlessly curious. Mm. I love to look things up. I love to find things out. I love to make connections. And I think a lot of a lot of those connections are about language, about ideas, about places. Particularly when you mention Mecca Lane, for example, which is the funny little street that faces east in Bungendore. And yeah. so it's those sort of funny little connections. Why is it called Mecca Lane? Because it faces east. Why did people face why what's facing east got to do with Mecca? Because uh, the British would first have encountered Islam in Egypt. And when a Muslim in Egypt prays, he faces towards Mecca, which direction is Mecca? Mecca's in Saudi Arabia, so he was facing east. Mm. So it all sort of fits together. Yeah. But it's those kind of quirky language, history, geography links that I find fascinating. Mm. Do you think you're a creative person? Now, it's funny you ask me that. I hope I'm not the wrong person for this interview because I've never thought of myself as a creative person. And I was thinking on the drive here this morning, I don't think I've I've done one painting in 40 years. I've written one poem in 40 years and I've written one short story in 40 years. So I never think of myself as a creative person mm. in that sense. Which is, I guess, why I wanted to start this podcast, because I'm actually excited that you don't think that you're a creative person, because it, it adds to my research and my thinking about, well, what does it actually mean to be creative? So you've said, well, I've never done a painting, I've never written a poem, or I've, I've only done one painting, one poem, one short story. But do you think that to be creative, there needs to be a, a tangible byproduct of, I guess, creation Whereas you've written a book, you give lectures, you give tours and, and uh, do workshops. So do you think that that's creative or do you see that as a different topic? I think, I think it is creation. And I think, the, again, on the way here, the more I thought about it, the more I could see that there's a much broader definition of creativity in which I think I, I would insert myself. So uh, there are two two mottos I try to live by. One is practice kindness and the other is create beauty. And mm. uh, if, if I'm living up to those rather lofty goals, then I think create beauty is something that I try to do all the time. So in my work, in my pleasures, in my hobbies, uh, in my activities, I think the creation of beauty is something I'm always striving for, if not always attaining. So in that sense, I'm, I'm prepared to admit that maybe, yes, maybe I am <laughs> more creative than I thought. Yeah, I guess I'm not here to convince you, but I think, um, I think it's interesting. I spoke to Louise Morris um, the other week. She's a lawyer. And we talked about the expectations of lawyers to be creative juxtaposed with the expectation of a graphic designer to be creative. So I guess the pressure for me to be creative is, is much more than, say, a lawyer or an academic or a linguist. Um, and yet I think creativity is in the way that we think on our feet and we adapt to different situations and we problem solve um, almost goes 
unnoticed as creativity. So would you say in the work that you do, would you class some people as more creative than others or do you think there's an underlying creativity across? That's a very interesting question. So so speaking as an academic, let me think about my colleagues. To what extent are they creative? Well, to teach, I think you have to be creative to a certain extent. You're always creating materials or creating interest or trying to elicit enthusiasm or love for your your topic or discipline from your students. To be an academic, you have to produce, you have to write articles, you have to write books, you have to give lectures. So in that sense, yes. So this is very much in that broader definition of creativity, of uh, creating ideas and bringing them to fruition, isn't it? Mm. This is more than doing a painting or writing a poem as, as a definition. That was my first humble definition mm. of creativity that I think you and I would agree we can leave behind. Well, I think that that's very typical for, I think that's the first um, place that people go when they think of a creative person. They're an artist or a poet or a dancer or something because they're, they're very artistic. I guess what I'm searching for is whether we can uncouple the words creative and artistic and see what it means to actually like, is everyone creative? Are we born creative? Because I don't think in academia, especially, you would necessarily call someone creative. I don't think it's the first word. I mean, it's not the first word that you thought of yourself. I think when you thought about like, well, actually, I probably am a creative person, but I don't paint, I don't draw, I don't sing. It's interesting whether people in the academic world label themselves as it or feel pressure to be creative in the way they teach and they share their knowledge? Well, I think you've raised a very interesting distinction between being creative and being artistic. So I think most of us, in fact, are not artistic unless we're in the school of art or the school of music, perhaps. But I think we are all creative in the broader sense of well, to create is to produce, isn't it? To bring forward, to make. And all the time we are, we are bringing forward, we are creating, we are making in mm. that sense. I like what you said about creating beauty as one of your values that you hold close to your heart. I wonder whether that's something, like you said, that people don't realise that distinction that we've made between being artistic and creative, but you are creating beauty in everything you do, whether it's giving someone a hug or shaking their hand or mm. welcoming them into your home or as simple as helping a struggling tomato plant in your garden get bigger. <laughs> um I'm curious to see what the ancient texts or um, the Sanskrit language has to say about creativity being such an old, old language. Is there any reference in the texts that you've studied? I, nothing immediately comes to mind, but it brings – I'm going to leap off on a tangent mm -hmm. here, and that is Sanskrit is not, it's not really a natural language. Uh, classical Sanskrit as we know it today was never spoken in the marketplace. You never learnt it on your mother's or grandmother's lap. It's an artificial language that was created and codified for the expression of the most beautiful and sublime thought mm. that human beings are capable of. It's an elite artificial language really that exists to create beauty. So the most beautiful poetry, the most beautiful thought, the most beautiful dialogues, uh, the most beautiful depictions of the natural world are, uh, in my humble opinion, of course I have to say this as a Sanskritist, are uh, uh, captured, are recorded, are created 
in Sanskrit. So in, one could argue that Sanskrit exists to create and enable beauty. That's really lovely, actually. So it wasn't a language that was spoken in homes or um, in the marketplace, as you said. It was a very artisan language that was reserved for stories about beauty and nature. And it, It's a scholarly it. language. It's the language of an educated elite. So it's the language, uh, the, the parallel that, that is often drawn is between Latin in pre-modern Europe and Sanskrit in pre-modern India. So in Europe, it didn't matter if you were French or Danish or Italian, scholars, when they met together, spoke Latin because that was the language they had in common. And so Latin was always the language of scholarly interchange in Europe uh, in pre-modern times. And even now in, uh, in India, scholars meeting from different parts of India, if they don't have a language in common, will speak Sanskrit together. Can I tell you a story Trish, so when I say this was the the language in common of pre-modern India, when scholars, when Sanskrit scholars meet together, such as at a World Sanskrit Conference, like the one we had here in Canberra, or was online, but it was held from Canberra, or the one before in Vancouver a couple of years back, scholars from Thailand, from Nepal, from Sri Lanka, and in this case, one scholar from Australia, when we met together, the language we had in common was Sanskrit. Sanskrit was what we spoke together. And I really love this feeling of being part of a 3,000-year-old continuum of the use of Sanskrit as a lingua franca among scholars. This is the language we share in common. So using this language, we can cross cultural, lang- uh, cultural, linguistic and geographical barriers and communicate together. Is it a hard language? I never, I never say anything's hard. Things aren't hard if you love them, if you enjoy them. It just, it just is, it exists. I, I'm very prepared to admit that it's complex. There's no doubt, there's absolutely no doubt that it's a very complex language. But is it hard? I don't remember ever finding it hard because it was a wonderful adventure, something to explore. I've always liked puzzles. I've always enjoyed enigma. I've always enjoyed exploration, finding things out, uh, word games. So, uh, no, I don't, think, I don't think I ever found Sanskrit hard, but it is inordinately, unnecessarily complex. Complex. You mentioned that there's a lot of things that you've done later in life and you've lectured later in life and you learnt um, Sanskrit. How old were you when you started learning Sanskrit? I must have been in my mid-40s, Mid-40s. So prior to that and maybe thinking back to your childhood, was this curiosity for the world supported in the community that you had? That's that's a really good question, Trish, and I've come to think about this not in recent years, and the answer is yes. My grandmother, who I loved dearly, was a very keen Japanophile, and she had a house full of Asian art and and Japanese friends coming and going, and there was ikebana, there was Japanese flower arrangements in the house. So I grew up with this. I can remember my parents took us on a world tour when I was 12, and I can remember 
uh, my mum speaking a little bit of her high school French. And, and I, could, I could see it working. Yes, languages work. You can do things. And at, at school, I did uh, Latin and German, and I loved them both. I loved the, the systematic nature of Latin, and I loved the fun of travelling in Germany and speaking with people in, in foreign languages. And uh, I must have been in about year 12, uh, and I picked up a book of translation of classical Chinese poetry. It was called 300 Poems of the Tang Dynasty. And it just, again, it was one of those light bulb moments. Yes, this is what I want to do. And coming from a respectable medical family to want to study Chinese literature in the mid-1970s was pretty out there. And uh, for the next... 10, 15 years, I was totally absorbed, totally uh, captivated by China, Chinese, everything, uh, going deeper and deeper into that extraordinary and wonderful culture, particularly language and literature. So, uh, no, I always felt very supported. And uh, growing up in a family where languages were of interest, uh, being lucky enough to go to a school where languages were, were taught and then having the freedom to study what I wanted, university, I've also been enormously fortunate in that I've been able to turn a string of hobbies into professions. Mm. So I've been very lucky and I've always felt that I've had good support to do yeah. that. It's definitely a common thread that I'm seeing through the people that I'm interviewing or even just people who I know and deem to be creative people. The celebration of our imagination, our creativity as young children is so influential on whether we continue down that path. And the question about whether we're born creative, I think is, I think that we are born creative, but you have to want it and you have to work on it. So I think that someone can be born into a creative family and thrive on that, or a creative person can be born into a family that doesn't support them creatively, doesn't see the arts or creation of beauty as something worth nurturing. And I think that can be very detrimental to people. It seems like you were born into a family where language and culture was very much valued. So travel was valued and your grandmother loving all things Japanese, it sounded like she was a real lighthouse in your life for sparking that that passion for curiosity for other cultures. Would you say she was the one who really kicked off things for you? Uh, at least partly, Trish, but I think probably more than that, was uh, the, that three-month trip to Europe that uh, we did when I was 12. So it was a month in Turkey and a month in Greece and a month in Italy. And I think I've been travelling ever since. That is what really sparked that interest, I think, in the world and understanding that there's so much beyond Melbourne, where I grew up. There's so much more beyond Australia. The world is full of interesting people, places, food, adventures. Uh, and I think my younger brother was the same, age nine. Uh, and I think he's also been travelling ever since. We're extraordinarily fortunate to have such enriching experience just at that, that cusp of adolescence when we're so, we're so uh, open to influence and ideas. And I think that was probably, uh, and I can remember also, speaking of languages, again, Trish, as a as a twelve year old, I copied out every Latin and Greek inscription I saw in Turkey and Greece as a twelve year old in my rather scrappy old diary. Can I tell you another funny story? So that was nineteen sixty nine, 
in 2019, which was 50 years later, we did the same trip again. I took my old moth-eaten diary and we travelled around Turkey with 12 or 14 members of my family and uh, friends and we did the same itinerary and we went to the same places and I had a lovely young great-niece who was a about 12, and a lovely young great-nephew who was about 11, and we'd get to the site where I had copied down these inscriptions as a 12-year-old in 1969, and I'd say to these kids, righto, guys, this is what we're looking for. There's an alpha, there's a delta, there's an epsilon. You got that? Okay, off you go. Like a treasure hunt. And they'd race off into the paddock with lots of old stone inscriptions lying around, hunting, hunting, hunting. And then someone would yell out, found it, here it is. And they'd race across. And there was exactly the same inscription that I had copied down as a 12-year-old. And it was so exciting for them and so exciting for me. And I can remember teaching them the letters of the Greek alphabet and trying to read some of those inscriptions. So maybe in 50 years' time they'll remember their funny old great-uncle Macomas and how he taught me the Greek letters or whatever it is. But that was so much fun. Well, I wonder whether the influence that you're having on them now is very similar to members of your own family. What an experience for them to do exactly the same trip that you did when you were their age. And I wonder how that's going to affect them down the road, whether you've lit something You've lit a spark for them. I do hope so. I do hope so. And, of course, we learned a bit of Turkish when we were kids, when we were there, and I made sure that that little great-nephew and that little great-niece also learnt some Turkish. And even now, six years later, I'm still testing them on their Turkish every now and then. So that's fun too. I've tried French, I've tried German, I did Latin at school, and it never really clicked for me. German was probably the closest thing that I could not master, but get moderately good at. And I spent some time in Germany on exchange at the end of high school. But languages have just never been my thing. And I like what she said about it's not really hard if you love it. And I think that I wanted to love it and I wanted to be good at languages, but I found it very difficult. I found the grammar very difficult. But I I wonder, say, comparing the two of us, I've tried languages and I find it very hard. But there's just something in you that is so curious about languages and culture and copying languages when you're a young boy on a trip with your family. It's a big question, but why are you good at language and I'm not? Ah, I've got the perfect answer. Well, I can't answer for you, Trish. Come and study with me and we'll see if we can change it around. But the answer for me that I like to say In a previous life, I was a parrot, and everyone knows that parrots can copy sounds. So I think I have some ability to copy sounds. The life before that, I was a monkey, and monkeys like games. So as far as I'm concerned, learning has always been a game. So all of the languages I've studied, I've studied for fun, for pleasure. It's a game. And uh, being able to, I I do have, I think, some facility for copying sound. So the combination of the monkey and the parrot makes languages not so <laughs> difficult. And again, I don't want to sound like a dick, but the first five were the hardest. Well, I wonder then what I was in a, a previous life if, uh, yeah, you've got me thinking now about, well, I wish I was a parrot because I, I see friends of mine who just, if you can speak one language, you can speak five. That's what they've said to me. But I'm, like, I'm still trying to remember my German genders and my how to get to the hospital in my best high school German. But maybe that's 
my challenge for the next year. <laughs> you have to you have to want it, you have to love it. Yeah, I think you have to have some really good reason. And I do find that with my students. Generally Sanskrit students are a pretty they're a self-selecting demographic, as you can imagine. You have to really want to do it because there's a lot of hard work. There's a lot of memorization that Australians are not particularly good at. Uh, I cause my students to sing, which always puts a cat among the pigeons because not many Australians like singing in public, but they're nearly all highly motivated. So why study Sanskrit, the classical language of India? Well, most of my students would be either yoga teachers or yoga practitioners, or they've grown up in an Indian family, or they subscribe to a, a Buddhist tradition or a Hindu tradition where the chanting, they're already chanting Sanskrit. They're using Sanskrit mantras in their daily practices already, and they want to find out what this what they're saying. So all of these people have a good reason. And the ones the ones who have a good reason will stick with it for four years till they finish the degree. One of my questions was going to be how you excite your students to learn a language like and I maybe you could help me with the, the word. It's not a a language like English or German that has letters of the alphabet. It's very image based. What's the word for that? Oh, well, in fact, it's not like Chinese. Chinese, of course, is based on characters and has no alphabet. Sanskrit does have an alphabet. And having done my first degree in Chinese, I am an enormous fan of languages with alphabets. Alphabets are the best possible <laughs> invention. They are so cool. I love them so much. Uh, having learned whatever it was, 3,000 Chinese characters that we had to learn. Uh, Sanskrit has an alphabet. And in that sense, it's actually easier than English because it's always pronounced exactly as it is written. So that's rather straightforward. But let me go back to your question. How do I bring what most people might think is a rather dry classical language? How do I make that interesting? How do I engage the students? Well, part of my job is very easy because the students are highly motivated, as I've said. I, I aim to make it fun, so I teach spoken Sanskrit, and I, th I think we're still the only place outside India that teaches spoken Sanskrit. Uh, there's a lot of singing, and uh, I never teach Sanskrit as a terrible word, as a dead classical language. I teach it as a living tradition. And I make it as fun, uh, as enjoyable as I can. There's an inordinate amount of laughter in our Sanskrit classrooms, probably much more than in most other Sanskrit classrooms, I imagine. So keep it light, keep it moving, keep it fun, keep it uh, highly interactive, keep it colourful, make it enjoyable. There's the spoken Sanskrit, there's the singing. Every week the students learn to sing a new verse, so at the end of the year they can sing 24 verses in Sanskrit and that gives them something to take away. How do you find with, I guess, the increase in people wanting to be yoga teachers? I know um, you mentioned uh, yoga teachers need to learn a certain amount of Sanskrit with the asanas and the mantras and mm. everything. I found it interesting how you said that your students are self-selecting. You don't take up Sanskrit unless you really want to learn it. And by week seven, they've worked out how passionate they are about Sanskrit. Do you see yoga teachers struggling with the language or do you think that they pick it up in the same way your, say, academic students do? That's a good question. It's probably not the inherent difficulty of the language itself that is the main barrier. The biggest barrier is I, I have lovely yoga teachers who come to me, but they've never studied at university before and they've never studied a language before. And Sanskrit is not a good first language because it's very, as I said, it's very complicated. But also it's just the discipline of tertiary study. You have to show up every week. 
You've got to submit your assignments. You've got to do the assessment and you need to do the preparation. You need to do the homework and that discipline of tertiary education. That's actually a bigger barrier than never having studied a language. And Trish, I just want to pick a bone with you. I don't think anyone is not a language person. I think it's like saying, oh, you cannot teach this person to draw or you cannot teach this person to paint. You cannot teach this person to sing. I'm sure... I'm sure I could turn you into a languages person. That's really interesting you've said that and you've really, you've stopped me in my tracks actually because I realised the comparison between me saying everyone's creative but I'm not a language. I'm not a languages person. (laughs) So you can teach creativity, you can teach someone to draw, everyone's creative but whoa, 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 like let's not talk about language. (laughs) So that's a really interesting comparison, actually, and interesting what you said about the discipline of university as opposed to the discipline of learning Sanskrit. So with the yoga teachers that come to you, do they enter into your Sanskrit degree or is there a different course that they do that's more specific to yoga? Uh, most of them would come into a diploma of languages. Mm-hmm. So they only do Sanskrit uh, and they do eight semesters of Sanskrit with me and they end up with a diploma at the end of it. So just to give a little bit more context there, most of my students are mature age, Mm -hmm. half of them would have a PhD in something already, Mm -hmm. uh, and they're doing this for love, they're doing this because they're teaching yoga, and they want to really to understand more about the asanas, understand more about the mantras. Uh, ultimately, a lot of them would want to read the yoga sutras, so that's the foundational text, uh, the how-to of yoga written in Sanskrit, 1500 years ago. So uh, a lot of yoga teachers would like to read that text in the original. So uh, yeah, that, that's basically where they're coming from. Yeah, that's. it's interesting that a practice that is so common in our lives today, you just go to a yoga class or you go to a gym and you take a class. Something that probably we take for granted is that that practice is deeply rooted in the same culture and same language that you have been studying for so long, um, having come from, I guess they are coming from a yoga perspective and they see learning Sanskrit as a necessity for their practice. So do they come in with the same passion for Sanskrit as the yeah. academics? Uh, usually, yes. Yeah, yeah. And in fact, uh, I do like teaching yoga teachers because they know about self-discipline, as you can imagine. Mm-hmm. Yoga itself means to join or to unite. And uh, it also has another, another sense of to discipline, to yoke. So they know all about focus and they know all about discipline and often they, they make very good students, particularly if they've got a bit of tertiary experience already, particularly if they've studied languages before. But uh, again, I think it's the motivation that's the important thing there, Trish. And so if you really, really want to learn, then that will carry you through. And one of the things they taught us at lecturer school, remind your students of their initial enthusiasm. It's impossible to maintain that level of enthusiasm indefinitely. It needs to be refreshed every now and then. So what I do right at the very beginning when I first meet the students, as as I will in in the coming weeks, I note down what their initial enthusiasm is and I keep that tucked away somewhere. So if I see there, oh, it's all getting too hard, I don't know why I'm doing this, then I can remind them that, you know, when you first came to me, you said you wanted to do this, this, and they go, oh, yeah, yeah, right, okay. And sometimes it will, it helps, it helps them get back on the treadmill again. Do you teach like other Sanskrit teachers? I don't think so. 
Uh, let me change that around. How does my teaching differ from the teaching of other Sanskritists? Well, firstly, because I teach as a living tradition, as I mentioned, because I recognise that most of our students are actually already using Sanskrit in some form or another. I'm very much into student-focused teaching. That is, I know how people learn. I know the sorts of difficulties and frustrations they have. The flip side of that coin is teacher-focused teaching, which is, I know what I want to teach. You folk have to learn X, Y, and Z. And that's the, that's the other side of the coin. And to be able to see it from the student's point of view, ah, uh, well, so I, this is what I want. Uh, these are the impediments I'm going to face. These are the hurdles I'm going to have to overcome. I feel, I, I, at least I strive to be much more student-focused than teacher-focused. Uh, and the other thing is because I'm nearly always learning something myself, I, I can think like a student as well. I can see where the problems are. I can see where the challenges are. I know what the university timetable looks like. I know when the big assessments are due. And I'm, I'm much more, I think I'm more sympathetic. So being able to sit where the students sit, being able to see the way the students see, teaching is a living tradition. And I'm also blessed with, I think, comparatively high levels of energy, and I can project that energy into the classroom and bring the students with me. And they do respond so nicely, Trish. I get such warmth. I mean, around about my age, most people are thinking about retirement and thinking about golf or thinking about travel. And I just get so much pleasure and so much energy. I feel I have the key to something very special. There's not many people who can teach Sanskrit. And there's quite a lot of people who want to learn it. And to be able to give them the key to unlock this treasure house, it's something, it's really special. I feel enormously privileged. I've got what they want. I can give it to them. They're happy. I'm happy. It's such a good relationship. Yeah. I think about the students you're about to meet for the first time in the new term and I wonder what they're expecting in learning Sanskrit as starting their degrees and the shock that they'll get when it's going to be completely different. <laughs> they uh, Well, yes, yes. Uh, they're usually, I think they're a bit surprised. Um, I've never really thought about that. I, as I say, I work hard to keep it interesting, to keep it fun, to keep it lively, uh, to keep everybody on their toes. And one thing that has happened, uh, well, I guess I've nearly always had an online component because I've always had students, not just outside Canberra, but outside Australia. So when, when a lot of teaching moved online during COVID, my poor colleagues were all tearing out their hair. Oh, how are we going to do it? How are we going to cope? But I'd been doing that for years already. So I was able to soothe their brows and hold their hands. And what I really wanted to say is there's also something very democratic about a Zoom classroom because everyone's got the same size. You can't hide up the back anymore. I can make sure that everybody is engaged and I can see what they're thinking. You can see their faces, you know what's going on. So although it does have disadvantages, teaching in a Zoom classroom has worked very, very well for me too, because I think it, it can be very good for student engagement. It was interesting. I was lecturing at the University of Canberra at the time COVID was on the scene. And it was really interesting seeing how the students adapted to being in person as opposed to learning online. And some of them, it was there was a lot of anxiety involved in that because I think especially as creative people, we want to be around people and we want to collaborate and being together in a virtual environment just didn't feel the same. 
Um, I was when I was speaking to Louise Morris the other day, we were speaking about when COVID hit, how she had to adapt with her work to do e-signing and, and e-contracts, but she'd been doing a lot of work in the lead up to COVID, not knowing it was coming, saying, I think we can make this easier in our industry rather than getting someone to come into the firm, sign a bit of paper. And like you said, back in the day, the thud of four volumes of your PhD and that that audible memory that you have. Is there something in your field that you think needs to change or you're ready to shake up? Okay. What needs to change? What needs to be shaken up? That's a really good question. One thing that I think every academic is aware of is the the increasing amount. Well, it's administration, but sometimes it looks like surveillance. And I would be quite keen to see the end of that. Uh, I'm a great believer in communities. I love to build and facilitate communities, and that's difficult. Firstly, that's difficult online, and it's also difficult in a university when so many people, including me, are very happy working from home. So how do I build a community with my colleagues if everyone's working from home? So that's something that I would I would like to change because I remember very fondly departmental morning teas where everyone comes together. In fact, going back even earlier to my undergraduate degree, it was the departmental library, such a quaint institution that hasn't existed anywhere probably for 30 years now. So the departmental library where the students worked together, the first years did their homework and the second years could give them a bit of a leg up and the third and fourth years, oh, they were so mature and so capable. Will we ever get there? They could be there to encourage everyone. Uh, the, the the professor or the lecturers would, would be cruising in and out. It's such a lovely learning community. Mm-hmm. And that's one thing that we've really lost with online learning is the is that well, we'd call it a peer learning community. And there's a very nice Sanskrit saying. Uh, they say that, that, that learning is like a cow. It has four legs. It has four limbs. So one, one of those limbs, one quarter, you learn from your teacher. One quarter, you learn through your own efforts. One quarter, you learn with the passage of time. And one quarter, you learn from your peers from the others in the class. And that's what we've really lost with online learning. It's what I've tried to facilitate by encouraging local meetups. So I know the students in Brisbane get together, the students in Melbourne get together, the students here in Canberra get together of their own volition, of their own bat uh, to work together. So there's a few things missing with the online learning. But uh, frankly, without it, Sanskrit, they would have killed it off years and years ago because we would normally have between 40 and 45 students. And of those 40 to 45, only three or four of them would be actual, what you would call real students or old fashioned students or on-campus students. Everybody else is all over Australia or they're working full time and so they can't come during office hours or, or, or they're somewhere else. Mm-hmm. So, so yes, the online teaching has disadvantages, but it also has advantages too. Mm-hmm. One of the last questions that I wanted to ask you was about um, in that same vein about having to move to online learning and thinking on your feet. Do you think in your years of experience, the people who you would class as creative or even in your own experience, do you think that creative people think on their feet better or adapt to change better? That's an interesting one. Do creative people think on their feet better or adapt to change better? I don't think so. I don't think necessarily. 
I think uh, adaptability and creativity are not, uh, I think they're separate streams. I think you could be highly creative and not at all adaptable, uh, highly adaptable and not at all creative, I think. Mm. Uh, it's an interesting question. Um, do you know, one of the things, speaking of creativity, can I, can I tell you another story? For uh, with our third-year students, we're really getting into Sanskrit literature. This is not just learning grammar anymore. This is rejoicing in, in the master texts of the Sanskrit archive. And there's the most wonderful piece of courtly poetry dating from about the 5th century probably called Megha Dutam. It means cloud messenger. It's basically a love story. A lonely individual sees a cloud going past and thinks, oh, that cloud's going north. It'll probably, uh, it'll probably pass over the country where my beloved is. And so he, he sends a love message to the cloud to carry it to his beloved up in the Himalayas. Anyway, the point is that for many years, I set the students a creative project. And I said, make this poem your own in any medium at which you excel and it's worth 10% of your grade. And so students who could paint, painted me a painting. Students who could write poetry, wrote me a poem. Students who could give public lectures, gave a public lecture. Students who did needlework, needled me. <laughs> Cloud messenger. So it's whatever they were good at. I said, whatever you're good at, don't, don't do something you're bad at. If you're hopeless at drawing, don't do me a drawing. If you're wonderful at painting, paint me a painting. And this was so much fun. Trish. So they, they created all sorts of wonderful things. We had manga cartoons, we had newspapers, uh, we had all sorts of wonderful, wonderful things. And one of the things that struck me as a result of that exercise is that in general, tertiary education keeps a lid on this boiling pot of creativity. It's like popcorn. If you take the lid off, the popcorn goes absolutely everywhere in the kitchen. And I had exactly the same feeling with this creative project that I used to do with the third years. As soon as I said, okay, this is yours, make it your own, boom, all of this wonderful stuff just, just came up out of nowhere. And I, I'm, I'm very regretful that we still don't do this. And I'm pretty sure that I'd never get it through the committees anymore <laughs> because you can't just do what you like in the classroom anymore. It's all got to be vetted by this committee and that committee. And because, I mean, how are you going to assess a piece of artwork? How are you going to judge this painting against this piece of needlework or that public performance? So I, I'm sorry I've let that slip, but boy, it was fun. What is it? Ask for forgiveness, not permission. <laughs> That's a really interesting project because you're not, and I think it's what we do with, you are creative, you are artistic. You are not artistic, therefore you are not creative. Whereas you gave your students the freedom to express themselves with their strengths, whether that was spoken word or needlepoint or through creating a newspaper. Did you see them really thrive in that environment when they were given that freedom to create? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Yes. Because they knew they were good at it and they were just, they were just taking the content from this Sanskrit poem and expressing it in creating in their own way, in their chosen medium. So very successful. In fact, I've just moved offices and one of the few things I bothered to shift from my old office to my new office are two beautiful works of art inspired by the Cloud Messenger poem and created by students 10 or 15 years ago. They were obviously receptive to that because we're talking about adapting and thinking on your feet. There may have been people in your class that went, well, no, this is a Sanskrit class and I come here and I read the text and I learn and I do the assignments. I'm not going to 
paint a picture. What have I just walked into? McComas is asking me to sing and and it would make some people very uncomfortable. Do you find there are some people in your class like that or they're very open to learning Sanskrit, whatever means necessary? Oh, well, there are two aspects to that. that. That creative third year project, again, because I said, do it in a medium in which you already excel. So in that sense, it took the stress and the pressure out of it. And I don't think anyone has ever said, oh, I'm not good at anything, because by the time you, of, of course, everyone's good at something. Uh, but the other side of that is our first years, our beginning students uncomfortable with having to speak a foreign language in front of a class. Even worse, having to sing a foreign language in front of a class. Yes, yes, they are, uh, they're nervous about it. But I provide a, a, a safe, supportive environment. And if people really don't want to, I'll let them off because I'm such a nice guy and they can sing to me later if they want to, if they don't want to sing in class. But boy, it's unusual. It's very unusual. So the important thing is that everyone feels happy and safe and comfortable. And when when I get those student evaluations back, they do say they feel safe and welcome in our little classrooms. And that's such an important thing for me to know that that's how the students feel. The last thing I wanted to ask you is now you're a grandfather and you've got these students who you've let out into the world with beautiful Sanskrit knowledge um, and you, you have such a wonderful family who I feel so privileged to have even been adjacent to and, and know in my life, but what do you want to be remembered for at the end of your life? Uh, well, Trish, I'd come back to those four little words, practice kindness and create beauty. And if anyone remembers that after I've died, they say, oh, gee, Grandpa, he was kind. Grandpa made interesting stuff. I'd be happy with that. That's all I ask. If I were remembered as a person who at least tried <laughs> to practice kindness and tried to create beauty, that I couldn't ask for more. Than that. Mm. Thank you so much for being with me today, McComas. That's so much fun, Trish. Let's do it all again. I loved it. <laughs> Thank you. So let's go over the plan again. We're all going to sign up for Sanskrit and I'll order matching jackets. I loved hearing about creativity from McComas's academic and linguistics perspective. He has this unique ability to get you excited about anything and I'm really grateful that he was able to share a little bit of that with us today. He really got me thinking about that blanket statement that this podcast is based on. I haven't got a creative bone in my body and how quick I was to shut down my own ability to learn languages while simultaneously spooking, everyone is creative. It seems that with the right teacher and the right environment that anything is possible. And after all, I didn't think I could start a podcast because I didn't think I had something to say, or people might not want to listen to my voice, or I didn't have the equipment. So this week, I'm going to extend myself a little bit and think differently about other things that I'm convinced I can't do. So far on the list is cooking rice, surfing, and walking a tightrope. If you learned something new today, remember it by telling a friend. Or even better, share the whole podcast so they can listen in too. Subscribe where you love to listen to your podcasts and you'll never miss an episode. So until next time, Danya Vard and Namaste. I'm Trish Johnston and you've been listening to Creative Bones. Creative Bones.